Section twenty nine of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume three, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter nineteen, verses twenty eight to thirty seven. Scripture fulfilled in every part of the crucifixion. It is finished. Reality of Christ's death. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John, chapter nineteen, verses twenty eight to thirty seven. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head, and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation, that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers, and broke the legs of the first, and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers, with a spear, pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. This part of St. John's narrative of Christ's passion contains points of deep interest, which are silently passed over by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The reason of this silence we are not told. Suffice it for us to remember that, both in what they recorded and in what they did not record, all four evangelists wrote by inspiration of God. Let us mark, for one thing, in these verses, the frequent fulfillments of prophetic scripture throughout every part of Christ's crucifixion. Three several predictions are specially mentioned in Exodus, Psalms, and Zechariah, which received their accomplishment at the cross. Others, as every well-informed Bible reader knows, might easily be added. All combine to prove one and the same thing. They prove that the death of our Lord Jesus Christ at Golgotha was a thing foreseen and predetermined by God. Hundreds of years before the crucifixion, every part of the solemn transaction was arranged in the divine councils, and the minutest particulars were revealed to the prophets. From first to last it was a thing foreknown, and every portion of it was in accordance with a settled plan and design. In the highest, fullest sense, when Christ died, he died according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. We need not hesitate to regard such fulfillments of prophecy as strong evidence of the divine authority of God's word. The prophets foretell not only Christ's death, but the particulars of his death. It is impossible to explain so many accomplishments of predicted circumstances upon any other theory. To talk of luck, chance, and accidental coincidence as sufficient explanation is preposterous and absurd. The only rational account is the inspiration of God. The prophets who foretold the particulars of the crucifixion were inspired by him who foresees the end from the beginning, and the books they wrote under his inspiration ought not to be read as human compositions, but divine. Great indeed are the difficulties of all who pretend to deny the inspiration of the Bible. It really requires more unreasoning faith to be an infidel than to be a Christian. The man who regards the repeated fulfillments of minute prophecies about Christ's death, such as the prophecies about his dress, his thirst, his pierced side, and his bones, as a result of chance and not of design, must indeed be a credulous man. We should mark, secondly, in these verses, the peculiarly solemn saying which came from our Lord's lips just before he died. St. John relates it that, when he had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It is surely not too much to say that of all the seven famous sayings of Christ on the cross, none is more remarkable than this, which John alone has recorded. The precise meaning of this wonderful expression, It is finished, is a point which the Holy Ghost has not thought good to reveal to us. There is a depth about it, we must instinctively feel, 
which man has probably no line to fathom yet there is perhaps no irreverence in conjecturing the thoughts that were in our lord's mind when the word was spoken the finishing of all the known and unknown sufferings which he came to endure as our substitute the finishing of the ceremonial law which he came to wind up and fulfil as the true sacrifice for sin the finishing of the many prophecies which he came to accomplish the finishing of the great work of man's redemption which was now close at hand all this we need not doubt our lord had in view when he said it is finished there may have been more behind for aught we know but in handling the language of such a being as our saviour on such an occasion and at so mysterious a crisis of his history it is well to be cautious the place whereon we stand is holy ground one comfortable thought at all events stands out most clearly on the face of this famous expression we rest our souls on a finished work if we rest them on the work of jesus christ the lord we need not fear that either sin or satan or law shall condemn us at the last day we may lean back on the thought that we have a saviour who has done all paid all accomplished all performed all that is necessary for our salvation we may take up the challenge of the apostle who is he that condemneth it is christ that died yea rather that is risen again who is even at the right hand of god and who also maketh intercession for us romans chapter eight verse thirty four when we look at our own works we may well be ashamed of their imperfections but when we look at the finished work of christ we may feel peace we are complete in him if we believe colossians chapter two verse ten we should mark lastly in these verses the reality and truth of christ's death we are told that one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water this incident small as it may seem at first sight supplies probable proof that the heart of our blessed lord was pierced and that life was consequently extinct he did not merely faint or swoon away or become insensible as some have dared to insinuate his heart actually ceased to beat he actually died great indeed was the importance of this fact we must all see on a moment's reflection that without a real death there could be no real sacrifice that without a real death there could be no real resurrection and that without a real death and real resurrection the whole of christianity is a house built on sand and has no foundation at all little indeed did that reckless roman soldier dream that he was a mighty helper of our holy religion when he thrust his spear into the lord's side that the blood and water mentioned in this place had a deep spiritual meaning we can hardly doubt st john himself seems to refer to them in his first epistle as highly significant this is he that came by water and blood first john chapter five verse six the church in every age has been of one mind in holding that they are emblems of spiritual things yet the precise meaning of the blood and water is a subject about which christians have never agreed and perhaps will never agree until the lord returns the favorite theory that the blood and water mean the two sacraments however plausible and popular may be reasonably regarded as somewhat destitute of solid foundation baptism and the lord's supper were ordinances already in existence when our lord died and they needed no reappointing it is surely not necessary to drag in these two blessed sacraments on every occasion and to insist on thrusting them forward as the hidden sense of every disputed text where the number two is mentioned such pertinacious application of hard places in scripture to baptism and the lord's supper does no real good and brings no real honour to the sacraments it is questionable whether it does not tend to vulgarize them and to bring them into contempt the true meaning of the blood and water is probably to be sought in the famous prophecy of zechariah where he says in that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of david and to the inhabitants of jerusalem for sin and uncleanness zechariah chapter thirteen verse one when was that fountain so truly and really opened as in the hour when christ died what emblem of atonement and purification was so well known to the jews as blood and water why then should we hesitate to believe that the flow of blood and water from our lord's side was a significant declaration to the jewish nation that the true fountain for sin was at length thrown open 
and that henceforth sinners might come boldly to christ for pardon and wash and be clean this interpretation at any rate deserves serious thought and consideration whatever view we take of the blood and water let us make sure that we ourselves are washed and made white in the blood of the lamb revelation chapter seven verse fourteen it will matter nothing at the last day that we held during life the most exalted view of the sacraments if we never came to christ by faith and never had personal dealings with him faith in christ is the one thing needful he that hath the son hath life and he that hath not the son of god hath not life first john chapter five verse twelve notes john chapter nineteen verses twenty eight to thirty seven verse twenty eight after this when our Lord had commended his mother, Mary, to John, I believe that the miraculous darkness for three hours came on. During these three hours I believe our Lord said nothing except, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As the darkness was passing away, he said, I thirst. This and the two last sayings, It is finished, and, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, were all that he said during the last three hours thus three of his seven sayings on the cross were before the darkness and four after it or during it the order of the famous seven sayings was as follows one father forgive them for they know not what they do two today shalt thou be with me in paradise three woman behold thy son behold thy mother four my god my god why hast thou forsaken me five i thirst six it is finished seven father into thy hands i commend my spirit jesus knowing accomplished etc in order to understand this verse aright there is one point concerning our lord's death which must be carefully remembered his death was entirely a voluntary act on his part in this one respect his death was unlike that of a common man and we need not wonder at it when we consider that he was god and man in one person the final separation between body and soul in his case could not take place until he willed it and all the power of jews and romans together could not have effected it against his will we die because we cannot help it christ died because he willed to die and not until the moment arrived when he saw it best he said himself, No man taketh life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. John chapter 10, verse 18. As a matter of fact, we know that our Lord was crucified about nine o'clock in the morning, and that he died about three o'clock in the afternoon of the same day. Mere physical suffering would not account for this. A person crucified in full health was known sometimes to linger on alive for three days, it is evident, therefore, that our Lord willed to give up the ghost in the same day that he was crucified, for some wise reason. This reason, we can easily suppose, was to secure the fullest publicity for his atoning death. He died in broad daylight, in the sight of myriads of spectators, and thus the reality of his death could never be denied. This voluntariness and free choice of his death, and the hour of his death, in my judgment, lie at the bottom of the verse before us remembering all this i believe that the sense of the verse before us must be paraphrased in the following way after this jesus knowing in his own mind that all things were now practically accomplished which he came into the world to do and knowing that it was expedient that his death should be a most public event in the face of the crowds assembled to view his crucifixion proceeded to say the last words which he intended to say before giving up the ghost at three o'clock and by saying them fulfill the prophecy of scripture nothing in the details of our lord's death we must always remember was accidental or by chance every part of the great sacrifice for sin was foreordained and arranged in the eternal counsels of the trinity even to the words which he was to speak on the cross the expression i thirst was chiefly used i believe in order to afford a public testimony of the reality and intensity of his bodily sufferings and to prevent anyone supposing because of his marvellous calmness and patience that he was miraculously free from suffering on the contrary he would have all around him know that he felt what all severely wounded persons and especially what all crucified persons felt a burning and consuming thirst 
so that when we read that he suffered for sins we are to understand that he really and truly suffered henry observes the torments of hell are represented by a violent thirst in the complaint of the rich man who begged for a drop of water to cool his tongue to that everlasting thirst we all had been condemned if christ had not suffered on the cross and said i thirst scott observes that christ suffered thirst in order that we might drink the water of life for ever and thirst no more quiznell remarks the tongue of jesus christ underwent its own particular torment in order to atone for the ill use which men make of their tongues by blasphemy evil speaking vanity lying gluttony and drunkenness the theory that christ only said i thirst in order to fulfil scripture is to my mind unsatisfactory and unreasonable his saying i thirst was a fulfilment of scripture but he did not merely say it in order to fulfil scripture st john according to his style of writing only means that by his saying i thirst and having his thirst relieved by vinegar the words of psalm sixty nine verse twenty one were fulfilled the greek word which is rendered accomplished is the same that is rendered finished in the thirtieth verse this difference within two verses in translating the same word is one of those blemishes in our authorized version which must be regretted the connection of the sentence that the scripture might be fulfilled is not very clear in my mind is it to be taken with the words which follow the verse or with those that immediately precede it the common view taken undoubtedly is to connect the sentence with i thirst the sense will then be jesus saith i thirst so that by this the scripture was fulfilled but is it necessary to make this connection might not the sentence be connected with the one which precedes the sense will then be jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished so that the scripture was fulfilled concerning himself said i thirst in three other places in st john where this sentence occurs that the scripture might be fulfilled the connection is with what goes before and not with what follows john chapter seventeen verse twelve chapter nineteen verses twenty four to thirty six semler and tholock incline to take this view but i admit that the matter is doubtful and it certainly is not one of vital importance one thing only must we remember our lord did not say i thirst for no other purpose than to fulfil scriptures he spoke with far deeper and stronger reasons and yet by his speaking and afterwards drinking vinegar a passage in the prophetical psalms was fulfilled verse twenty nine now there was set vessel vinegar this would be more literally rendered there was lying a vessel in all probability this was a vessel full of the sour wine in common use among the roman soldiers and they filled a sponge etc the persons here spoken of seem to be the roman soldiers who carried out the details of the crucifixion the vinegar was theirs and it is not likely that any one would have dared to interfere with the criminal hanging on the cross except the soldiers the act recorded here must be carefully distinguished from that recorded in matthew chapter twenty seven verse thirty four and is the same as that recorded in matthew chapter twenty seven verse forty eight the first drink of vinegar and gall commonly given to criminals to deaden their pains our lord refused the second here mentioned was given i believe notwithstanding what some writers say in kindness and compassion and our lord did not refuse to accept it a sponge filled with vinegar and put on the end of a stick was far the easiest and most convenient way of giving a drink to one whose head was at least seven or eight feet from the ground and whose hands being nailed to the cross were of course unable to take any cup and put it to his mouth from a sponge full of liquid pressed against the lips a crucified person might suck some moisture and receive some benefit what this hyssop here mentioned was is a point by no means clearly ascertained casaubon speaks of the question as a proverbial difficulty some think that it was a branch of the plant hyssop fastened to the end of a reed this seems very improbable because of the sponge dr forbes royal maintains that it was the caper plant which bears a stick about three or four feet long hengstenberg gives evidence from talmudic writers that the hyssop was among the branches used at the feast of the tabernacles and that its stalk was an l long like many other questions of bible natural history the point must probably be left obscure some see deep meaning in the mention of hyssop 
as the plant used in the ceremonial sprinkling of the law of moses see hebrews chapter nine verse nineteen hyssop moreover was used at the passover in sprinkling the doorposts with blood exodus chapter twelve verse twenty two yet the allusion to say the least seems doubtful nor is it quite clear how any typical meaning can be got out of the mention of the plant in this place it is very noteworthy that even in the roughest hardest kind of men like these heathen soldiers there is sometimes a tender and compassionate spot in the breast according to matthew's account the cry i thirst must have followed soon after the cry my god my god why hast thou forsaken me this exhibition of great mental and bodily agony combined in my opinion touched the feelings of the soldiers and one of them at least ran to give our lord vinegar we should remember this in dealing with men even the worst often have a soft place if we can find it out in their inward nature cyril maintains strongly i must admit that the act of the soldiers in giving our lord the sponge full of vinegar was not an act of kindness but of mockery and insult i cannot however agree with him he does not appear to distinguish between the first drink which our lord refused at the beginning of his crucifixion and the last which he accepted but speaks of them as one and the same theophylact agrees with cyril verse thirty when jesus therefore finished our lord having now given plain proof that he had endured intense bodily suffering and that like any other human sufferer he could appreciate a slight relief of thirst such as the vinegar afforded proceeded to utter one of his last and most solemn sayings it is finished this remarkable expression in the greek is one single word in a perfect tense it has been completed it stands here in majestic simplicity without note or comment from st john and we are left entirely to conjecture what the full meaning of it is for eighteen hundred years christians have explained it as they best can and some portion of its meaning in all likelihood has been discovered yet it is far from unlikely that such a word spoken on such an occasion by such a person at such a moment just before death contains depths which no one has ever completely fathomed some meanings there are which no one perhaps will dispute belonging to this grand expression which i will briefly mention no one single meaning as we may be sure exhausts the whole phrase it is rich full and replete with the deep truths a our lord meant that his great work of redemption was finished he had as daniel foretold finished transgression made an end of sin made reconciliation for iniquity and brought in everlasting righteousness daniel chapter nine verse twenty four after thirty-three years since the day when he was born in bethlehem he had done all paid all performed all suffered all that was needful to save sinners and satisfy the justice of god he had fought the battle and won it and in two days would give proof of it by rising again b our lord meant that god's determinate counsel and forewill concerning his death was now accomplished and finished all that had been appointed from all eternity that he should suffer he had now suffered c our lord meant that he had finished the work of keeping god's holy law he had kept it to the uttermost as our head and representative and satan had found nothing in him he had magnified the law and made it honourable by doing perfectly all its requirements woe unto us says burquette if christ had left but one farthing of our debt unpaid we must have lain in hell insolvent to all eternity d our lord meant that he had finished the types and figures of the ceremonial law he had at length offered up the perfect sacrifice of which every mosaic sacrifice was a type and symbol and there remained no more need of offerings for sin the old covenant was finished e our lord meant that he had finished and fulfilled the prophecies of the old testament at length as the seed of the woman he had bruised the serpent's head and accomplished the work which messiah was engaged by covenant to come and perform f finally our lord meant that his sufferings were finished like his apostle he had finished his course his long life of pain and contradiction from sinners and above all his intense sufferings as bearers of our sins on gethsemane and calvary were at last at an end the storm was over and the worst was past 
the cup of suffering was at last drained to the very dregs thoughts such as these come to my own mind when i read the solemn phrase it is finished but i am far from saying that the phrase does not contain a great deal more in interpreting such a saying i am deeply conscious that there is an inexhaustible fullness in our lord's words i am sure we are more likely to make too little of them than to make too much luther remarks in this word it is finished will i comfort myself i am forced to confess that all my finishing of the will of god is imperfect piecemeal work while yet the law urges on me that not so much as one tittle of it must remain unaccomplished christ is the end of the law what it requires christ has performed to the objection of some persons that all things were not completely finished and accomplished until jesus rose again and ascended into heaven calvin replies that jesus knew that all things were now practically accomplished and that nothing now remained to hinder his finishing the work he came to do and he bowed his head this is an action of one dying when the will ceases to exercise power over muscles and nerves at once those parts of the body which are not rigid like the bones collapse and fall in any direction to which their centre of gravity inclines them the head of a crucified person when naturally in death droop forward on the breast the neck being no longer kept stiff by the will this is what seems to have happened in the case of our lord may we not gather from this expression that our lord up to this moment held up his head erect firm steady and unmovable even under extreme pain alfred remarks how this little incident was evidently recorded by an eyewitness the miraculous darkness must have now passed away in order to let this movement of the head be seen and he gave up the ghost these words mean literally delivered up the spirit it is an expression never used of any dying person in the bible except our lord it is an expression denoting voluntary action he delivered up his spirit of his own free will because the hour was come when he chose to do it he had just said after using the phrase it is finished father into thy hands i commend my spirit and then he proceeded to deliver up his spirit into the hands of god the father it is the father and none else to whom the words he delivered up must apply augustine observes not against his will did the saviour spirit leave his flesh but because he would and when he would and how he would who is there that can ever go to sleep when he will as jesus died when he would who thus puts off his clothes when he will as jesus unclothed himself of his flesh when he would who goes out of his door when he will as jesus when he would went out of this world in death as well as in life our lord has left us an example of course we cannot like him choose the moment of our death and in this as in everything else we must be content to follow him at an enormous distance the best of saints is a miserable copy of his master nevertheless we too as cyril observes must endeavour to put our souls into god's hands if god is really our father when the last hour of our lives comes and like jesus to place them by faith in our father's keeping and trust our father to take care of them above all let us never forget as we read of christ's death that he died for our sins as our substitute his death is our life he died that we might live we who believe on christ shall live for evermore sinners as we are because christ died for us the innocent for the guilty satan cannot drag us away to everlasting death in hell the second death cannot harm us we may safely say who can condemn me or slay my soul i know well that i deserve death and that i ought to die because of my sins but then my blessed head and substitute died for me and when he died i his poor weak member was reckoned to die also get thee behind me satan for christ was crucified and died my debt is paid and thou canst not demand it twice over for ever let us bless god that christ gave up the ghost and really died on the cross before myriads of witnesses that giving up the ghost was the hinge on which all our salvation turned in vain christ's life and miracles and preaching if christ had not at last died for us we needed not merely a teacher but an atonement and the death of a substitute 
the mightiest transaction that ever took place on earth since the fall of man was accomplished when jesus gave up the ghost the careless crowd around the cross saw nothing but the common death of a common criminal but in the eyes of god the father the promised payment for a world's sin was at last effected and the kingdom of heaven was thrown wide open to all believers the finest pictures of the crucifixion that artists have ever painted give a miserably insufficient idea of what took place when jesus gave up the ghost they can show a suffering man on a cross but they cannot convey the least notion what was really going on the satisfaction of god's broken law the payment of sinners debt to god and the complete atonement for a world's sin the precise physical cause of the death of christ is a very interesting subject which must be reverently approached but deserves attention dr stroud in his book on the subject takes a view which is supported by the opinions of three eminent edinburgh physicians the late sir james simpson dr begbie and dr struthers this view is that the immediate cause of our lord's decease was rupture of the heart dr simpson argues that all the circumstances of our lord's death his crying with a loud voice just before death not like an exhausted person and his sudden giving up the ghost confirm this view very strongly he also says that strong mental emotions produce sometimes laceration or rupture of the walls of the heart and he adds if ever a human heart was riven and ruptured by the mere amount of mental agony endured it would surely be that of our redeemer above all he argues that the rupture of the heart would go far to account for the flow of blood and water from our lord's side when pierced with a spear dr simpson's very interesting letter on the subject will be found in the appendix to hannah's last days of our lord's passion concerning the deep questions as to what became of our lord's soul when he gave up the ghost it must suffice to believe that his soul went to paradise the place of the departed spirits of believers he said to the penitent thief to-day shalt thou be with me in paradise luke chapter twenty three verse forty three this is the true meaning of the article descended into hell in the belief hell in that clause certainly does not mean the place of punishment but the separate state or place of departed spirits some theologians hold that between his death and resurrection he went and preached to the spirits in prison first peter chapter three verse nineteen and proclaimed the accomplishment of his work of atonement this to say the least is doubtful but athanasius ambrose zwingle calvin erasmus colovius and alfred hold this view concerning the miraculous signs which accompanied our lord's death the darkness from twelve o'clock to three the earthquake the rending of the temple veil st john is silent and doubtless for some wise reason but we may well believe that they struck myriads with awe and astonishment and perhaps smoothed the way for our lord's burial in joseph's tomb without opposition or objection verse thirty one the jews therefore because it was etc the jews in this verse as in many other places in st john's gospel can only mean the chief priests and leaders of the nation at jerusalem the same men who had pressed on pilate our lord's crucifixion annas caiaphas and their companions the preparation means the day preceding the passover sabbath that sabbath being preeminently a high day or to render the greek literally a great day in the year the friday or day preceding it was devoted to special preparations hence the day went by the name of the preparation of the sabbath the expression makes it certain that jesus was crucified on a friday the jews saw clearly that unless they took active measures to prevent it the body of our lord would remain all night hanging on the tree of the cross the law would be broken deuteronomy chapter twenty one verse twenty three and a dead body would hang throughout the sabbath in full view of the temple and close by the city walls therefore they made haste to have him taken down from the cross and buried the breaking of the legs of crucified criminals in order to dispatch them seems to have been a common accompaniment to this barbarous mode of execution when it was necessary to make an end of them and get them out of the way in asking pilate to allow this breaking of the legs they did nothing but what was usual but for anything we can see the thing would not have been done if the jews had not asked the verse supplies a wonderful example of the way in which god can make the wickedest men unconsciously carry out his purposes and promote his glory if the jews had not interfered this friday afternoon for anything we can see pilate would have allowed our lord's body to hang upon the cross till sunday or monday and perhaps to see corruption 
the jews procured our lord's burial the very day that he died and thus secured the fulfilment of his famous prophecy destroy this temple of my body and in three days i will raise it up john chapter two verse nineteen if he had not been buried till sunday or monday he could not have been raised again the third day after his death as it was the jews managed things so that our lord was laid in the grave before the evening of friday and was thus enabled to fulfil the famous type of jonah and give the sign he had promised to give of his messiahship by lying three days in the earth and then rising again the third day after he died all this could not have happened if the jews had not interfered and got him taken from the cross and buried on friday afternoon how true it is that the wickedest enemies of god are only axes and saws and hammers in his hands are ignorantly his instruments for doing his work in the world the restless busy meddling of caiaphas and his companions was actually one of the causes that christ rose the third day after death and his messiahship was proved pilate was their tool but they were god's tools the romans in all probability would have left our lord's body hanging on the cross till sun and rain had putrefied and consumed it had such a thing been possible bishop pearson says it was a common rule of roman law not to permit sepulchre to the body of a crucified person the burial therefore was entirely owing to the request of the jews the providence of god ordering things so that they who interceded for his crucifixion interceded for his burial and by so doing they actually paved the way for the crowning miracle of his resurrection let us mark the miserable scrupulosity that is sometimes compatible with the utmost deadness of conscience thus we see men making ado about a dead body remaining on the cross on the sabbath at the very time when they have just murdered an innocent living person with the most flagrant injustice and monstrous cruelty it is a specimen of straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel verse thirty two then came the soldiers etc pilate having given his consent to the request of the jews the roman soldiers proceeded to break the legs of the criminals and began with the two thieves why they began with them is by no means clear if the three crosses were all in a row it is hard to see why the two outer criminals of the three should have had their legs broken first and the one in the centre be left to the last we must suppose one of three things in order to explain this a possibly two of the soldiers broke the legs of one malefactor and the other two the legs of the other reason and common sense point out that it does not require four men to do this horrid work on a helpless unresisting crucified person thus having finished their work at the two outward crosses they would come at last to the centre one b possibly the two outward crosses may have been rather forwarder in position than the central one so that the sufferers might see each other's faces in that case the soldiers would naturally begin with the cross they came to first this perhaps would account for the penitent thief having read the word king over the lord's head on the cross c possibly the soldiers saw that our lord was dead even before they came up to him at any rate they probably saw that he was still and motionless and thus suspecting that he was dead they did not trouble themselves with his body but began with the two who evidently were yet alive it is noteworthy that the penitent thief even after his conversion had more suffering to go through before he entered paradise the grace of god and the pardon of sin did not deliver him from the agony of having his legs broken when christ undertakes to save our souls he does not undertake to deliver us from bodily pains and a conflict with the last enemy penitence as well as impenitence must taste death and all its accompaniments conversion is not heaven though it leads to it scott remarks that those who broke the legs of the penitent thief and hastened his end were unconsciously instruments of fulfilling our lord's promise to-day shalt thou be with me in paradise how the legs of crucified criminals were broken we do not know but it was probably done in the roughest manner with such tools at hand as the hammers used for driving in the nails and the mattocks and spades used for putting the cross in the ground the soldiers could hardly want instruments it must be remembered that a simple fracture would not cause death the greek word which we render break means literally shiver to pieces may it not be feared that this is the true meaning here verse thirty three but when they came to jesus etc this verse contains the first proof of the mighty fact that our lord really died we are told that the soldiers did not break his legs because they saw that he was already dead accustomed as roman soldiers necessarily were to see death in every form 
wounds of every kind and dead bodies of every description and trained to take away human life by their profession they were of all men least likely to make a mistake about such a matter thus we have it most expressly recorded that the soldiers saw that he was dead already and therefore did not break his legs our salvation hinges so entirely on jesus christ's vicarious death that a moment's reflection will show us the divine wisdom of the fact being thoroughly proved his unbelieving enemies could never say that he did not really die and that he was only in a swoon or fainting fit or state of insensibility the roman soldiers are witnesses that on the centre cross of the tree they saw a dead man verse thirty four but one spear pierced his side here we have the second proof that our lord did really die one of the soldiers determined to make sure work and leave nothing uncertain thrust his spear into our lord's side and in all probability directing his thrust at the heart as a seat of vitality that thrust made it certain if there had been any doubt before that the body on the central cross was actually dead they believed it from appearance and perhaps from touch when they first came up to the cross they made it quite certain by the thrust of the spear the body of a person in a swoon would have given some sign of life when pierced with a spear the gross inaccuracy of those pictures which represent this soldier as a horseman is worth noticing our lord's body was easily within reach of the thrust of a spear in the hand of a foot soldier there is no evidence whatever that any roman cavalry was near the cross the theory of bishop pearson that this soldier pierced our lord's side in anger and impatience as if provoked to find him dead does not appear to me well founded it is not likely that the soldiers would be angry at finding a state of things which saved them trouble to me it seems far more likely that the thrust was the hasty careless act of a rough soldier accustomed to prove in this way whether a body was alive or dead i have heard it said by an eye-witness that some of the cossacks who followed our retreating cavalry after the famous balaclava charge in the crimean war were seen to prick bodies of fallen soldiers with their spears in order to see whether they were dead or alive theophylact suggests that this soldier thrust the spear into our lord's side in order to gratify the wicked jews who stood by besser remarks most sensibly even the soldier's spear was guided by the father's hand and forthwith blood and water the remarkable fact here recorded has given rise to considerable difference of opinion a some as grotius calvin biza and others hold that this issue of blood and water was a proof that the heart or pericardium was pierced and death in consequence quite certain they say that the same result would follow from a thrust into the side of any person lately dead and that blood and water or something closely resembling it would immediately flow out they maintain therefore that there was nothing supernatural in the circumstance recorded b others as most of the fathers brentius musculus calovius lamp lightfoot rollock jesenius bengal horsley and hengstenberg hold that this issue of blood and water was supernatural extraordinary unusual and contrary to all experience and they maintain that it was a special miracle the question is one of those which will probably never be settled we are not in possession of sufficiently precise information to justify a very positive opinion we do not know for a certainty that the left side of our lord was pierced and not the right we do not know exactly how much blood and water flowed out whether a large quantity or very little that a miracle might take place at such a death on such an occasion and in the body of such a person we have no right to deny the mere fact that when our lord hung on the cross the sun was darkened and when he gave up the ghost the veil of the temple was rent in twain and the rocks rent and the earth quaked might well prepare our minds to see nothing extraordinary in a miracle taking place and almost to expect it perhaps the safest line to adopt is to combine both views the thrust of the spear into the side caused the blood to flow and proved that the seat of vitality in the body was pierced the extraordinary and unusual flow of blood and water was a supernatural event and meant to teach spiritual lessons i may be allowed to say that three eminent medical men in large practice whom i have ventured to consult in this verse are all of one mind that any large flow of blood and water from a dead body is contrary to all ordinary experience each of them singularly enough has expressed this opinion independently and without any communication with the other two 
concerning the symbolical meaning of this flow of blood and water from our lord's side much has been written in every age of the church that it has a deep spiritual sense appears almost certain from st john's words in his first epistle first john chapter five verses six to eight but what the real symbolical meaning was is a very disputable question a the common opinion is that the blood and water symbolize the two sacraments of baptism and the lord's supper both given by christ and emanating from him and both symbols of atonement cleansing and forgiveness this is the view of chrysostom augustine andrews and a large body of divines both ancient and modern i cannot myself receive this opinion in matters like this i dare not call any man master or endorse an interpretation of scripture when i do not feel convinced that it is true i cannot see the necessity of dragging in the sacraments at every point in the exposition of god's word as some do b my own opinion is most decided that the flow of blood and water whether supernatural or not was meant to be a symbolical fulfilment of the famous prophecy in zechariah in that day there shall be a fountain opened in the house of david and to the inhabitants of jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness zechariah chapter thirteen verse one it was a practical declaration by fact and deed to all jews that by christ's death that famous prophecy was fulfilled and that now at last there was a fountain opened by christ's death the moment he was dead this fountain was opened and began to flow over the bleeding side of our lord there might have been written behold the fountain for all sin it is no small evidence to my mind in favor of this view that this famous prophecy occurs only five verses after the text immediately quoted by st john in this very chapter they shall look on him whom they pierced zechariah chapter twelve verse ten augustine sees a type of this wound in our lord's side from which flowed blood and water in the door in the side of noah's ark by which the living creatures entered in and were preserved from drowning he also sees another type of the transaction in the first adam sleeping and eve being formed out of his side the opinion held by some that this blood and water warrant the mixture of water and wine in the lord's supper seems to me utterly untenable as musculus sensibly observed it was not wine and water but blood and water that flowed from our lord's side there is not the slightest evidence that our lord used water at the institution of the lord's supper that blood was the symbol of atonement and water of cleansing every careful reader of the old testament must know the two things are brought together by st paul in hebrews chapter nine verse nineteen the smiting of the rock by moses and water flowing forth was also typical of the event before us lightfoot mentions a jewish tradition that blood and water flowed from the rock at first henry says the blood and water signified the two great benefits which all believers partake of through christ justification and sanctification blood stands for remission water for regeneration blood for atonement water for purification the two must always go together christ hath joined them together and we must not think to put them asunder they both flowed from the pierced side of our redeemer verse thirty five and he that saw it bear record etc this singular verse by common consent can only refer to st john it is as though he said the fact that i now testify to i saw with my own eyes and my testimony is true and accurate and trustworthy and i know that i say true things in recording the fact so that you to whom i write need not hesitate to believe me i stood by i saw it i was an eye-witness and i do not write by hearsay the greek word rendered true in the second place in this verse means literally true things the question arises naturally to what does john refer in this particular verse a does he refer only to the issue of blood and water from our lord's side as a singular miraculous event b or does he refer to the thrust of the spear into our lord's side as a convincing proof that our lord really died c or does he refer to the fact that our lord's legs were not broken and that he thus saw the great type of the passover lamb fulfilled i decidedly lean to the opinion that the verse refers to all the three things i have mentioned together and not to any one of them only all three things were so remarkable and so calculated to strike the mind of a pious and intelligent jew and all happened in such close and rapid succession that john emphatically records that he saw all three with his own eyes he seems to say i saw myself 
that not a bone of the Lamb of God was broken, so that he fulfilled the type of the Passover. I saw myself a spear thrust into his heart, so that he was a true sacrifice and really died. And I saw myself that blood and water came out of his side, and I beheld a fulfillment of the old prophecy of a fountain for sin being opened. When we consider the immense importance and significance of all these three things, we do not wonder that John should have been inspired to write this verse, in which he emphatically tells his readers that he is writing down nothing but the plain naked truth, and that he actually saw these three things, the unbroken legs, the pierced side, the flow of blood and water, with his own eyes. Pierce and Alford think that the expression, that ye might believe, signifies that ye might believe that Jesus did really die on the cross. Others decidedly prefer to think that it means that ye might believe that blood and water did really flow from the side of Jesus after his death. Others take the phrase in the general sense, that ye might believe more firmly than ever on Christ as the true sacrifice for sins. Verses 36 and 37. For these things were done, etc. In these two verses, John explains distinctly to his readers why the two facts he has just mentioned, however trifling they may seem to be to an ignorant person, were in reality of great importance. By one of these facts, the not breaking a bone of our Lord's body, the text was fulfilled which said that not a bone of the Passover lamb should be broken. Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. By the other fact, the piercing of our Lord's side, the prophecy of Zechariah was fulfilled, that the inhabitants of Jerusalem should look on him whom they pierced. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Alfred observes that the expression, they shall look, does not refer to the Roman soldiers, but to the repentant in the world, who at the time this gospel was written had begun to fulfill this prophecy, and that it also contains a prophetic reference to the future conversion of Israel, who were here the real piercers, though the act was done by the hands of others. It is almost needless to say that the passage, like many others, does not mean that these things were done in order that Scripture might be fulfilled, but that by these things being done, the Scripture was fulfilled, and God's perfect foreknowledge about the least details of Christ's death was proved. Nothing in the great sacrifice happened by chance, luck, or accident. All was arranged as appointed from first to last, many centuries before, by the determinate counsel of God. Caiaphas, Pilate, the Roman soldiers, were all unconscious instruments in carrying into effect what God had long predicted and foretold to the least jot and tittle. Let us carefully note here what strong evidence these verses supply in favor of a literal and not a merely spiritual fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Rollock observes, If God have ordained and said anything, it lies not in the hands of any man to disannul it. If God shall say, there shalt not be one bone of my anointed broken, great Caesar and all the kings of the earth, the king of Spain and the Pope and all their adherents shall not be able to do the contrary. So in the midst of all fear and danger, let us depend on the providence of God. End of section 29